This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Okay, big news, everybody. We have set our launch date for season two of The Wild. We'll be releasing our first new episode on February 4th. We have some great new adventures for you coming up. I can't wait to share them with you all. And I want to thank all of you for sticking around with us as we've been preparing to bring you great new content. I hope you've enjoyed these bonus episodes we've been releasing. I'm really excited to share this one now. Earlier this fall, we did a Stories from the Wild event in Seattle. So just to give you all a little bit of background on how this night came together, we were finishing up the first season of the Wild this summer, and we wanted to do something fun and get people together. So we decided to put on a storytelling event. We put out a call on social media and to our friends and asked people to volunteer and send us their stories. Then they auditioned and we worked with them to edit their stories. So all the people you're about to hear from have worked really hard to prepare and share their experiences of the wild with us, to connect with us, sometimes in some very personal ways. The night was a great success. I had a ton of fun and it was really good just to sit back and listen to a few stories instead of being the one that's always telling them. We've broken up the show into two parts, so I hope you enjoy this first half and look out for part two also in your podcast feed. Our, fir- our first storyteller of the evening is a stand-up, not comedian, stand-up paddleboarder. <laughs> He's funny as well, though. Maybe stand-up paddleboarder, comedian. Hey, that might be an awesome idea. Yeah. And he's serious about paddleboarding. In fact, he once did a trip that was 40 miles of open water from Port Townsend to Victoria on a paddleboard. So he believes that the sea can change us. And he encourages everyone he meets to to step across that threshold from land to sea, to become immersed and to have experiences and to give yourself the time and the space to be transformed by those experiences. Those are his words. In my travels, I've had a bunch of opportunities to have close encounters with with wild animals, and there's a real amazing energy and a beauty and a power that comes with that, isn't there? It's, it's, It's intoxicating. But most of my encounters have been with my feet firmly planted on the ground, on the earth. Not so for this first story. So let's kick things off, ladies and gentlemen, with Dean Burke. Please welcome Dean to the stage. Thank you for being here. The story begins on a clear, cold winter day. And I was alone on my paddleboard and I had what seemed like the entire Salish Sea to myself. I was far from land, far away enough that I couldn't hear any of the sounds of the shore. Of course, it was early in the morning and the world's just a little bit quieter than anyway. It was the kind of calm where you could hear the beating wings of seabirds. And in the distance, I heard a familiar sound, the blast and whoosh of air and water. The sound of a mammal breathing. 
the sound of a very large mammal breathing. <laughs> a flash of shimmering gloss black caught my eye, and then another and another, followed by more blasts of air and water. And there they were, a pod of eight orca whales. I stopped and watched patiently and a little bit anxiously as they rose to the surface, traveling along in their family order. Leading majestically above the group was a large bull that dwarfed all the others in the pod, nearly 10,000 pounds, and with a dorsal fin that went out of the water, stands almost as tall as I'm standing here now. He seemed to kind of saunter along, rising and breathing and rising and breathing, and he began to steadily work his way closer to me. And now he's swimming past me from left to right, maybe, maybe 200 feet away. He slowed his pace and his time at the surface and grew much longer. And then he rose again, exhaled, his body at the surface and his dorsal fin standing tall and the ridge of his back exposed out of the water in that winter sunlight just shining, glistening off that, that black. And he stopped. He stopped. There's a certain slow motion effect to it all. It replays in my mind often because there he was. He stopped and I realized, I realized in that moment that not only was I aware of him, <laughs> but he was aware of me. And right about then, that mighty dorsal fin in his back began to rotate about 90 degrees. <laughs> I took a deep breath as he began to come toward me and that dorsal fin began to submerge. There was nothing I could do now but wait and accept whatever was about to happen next. Cue the music. <laughs> the fin vanished beneath the surface. And the rest of the pod, they weren't far behind. They seemed to have the same agenda now too. Here they came. A second later, the back and the fin and the air and the whoosh exploded right in front of me, right in front of my board. And that bull rolled to his side and swam right under me, staring up at me as he went by. A moment later, the water around me is exploding. All eight whales are here now. And they're breaching, they're splashing, they're rolling, and they're vocalizing, they're vocalizing. I can hear them. They're whistling and they're clicking as they're moving about and they're communicating. And there's a mother and a baby. And each time they go around me, she comes a little closer and she's bringing that baby closer and closer until finally they come right up to me and they stop and they look at me. They look at me and they wait. And now we're looking at each other and we're making eye contact. Eye contact. This is the prize of a whale encounter. This is not whale watching. <laughs> this, this is now an experience for both the whale and the human. This is now an experience for these whales and for me. This is now our experience together. It's the closest thing to alien contact I'll ever know. <laughs> and it's summed up simply as making eye contact. To see that massive eye and that massive animal as it lays there and looks up at you. And you know that you're thinking about it and you, and you think it must be thinking about me. And you share this moment together just looking back and forth into each other. And it seems to last forever. And in my mind and in my heart, it does. It stays there. And it's an experience that now I've come to know many, many times. I've seen some of the same whales approach me more than once. 
And I wonder, I feel like we know each other, you know? My story is not, and it should not be unique, but in a modern world, I think it's becoming rare. To have experiences like this requires access to a healthy environment. And that's something that's just constantly under pressure. Many access points to places for such wild experiences were designated and protected long ago. National parks, state parks, wild lands, and these are good, good things. And they're treasured and mostly well protected. However, there are, I think there are a few far success stories of recovery and rehabilitation and restoration that create new access to wild experiences. Stories about change. And I think maybe this is just one such story where we get to celebrate something good, where my hometown, Tacoma, was able to make a change. And it was a change that allowed myself and many others to have access to a sea that, where access had not existed for some hundred years. I think the phrase is nice that says, if you build it, they will come, but I don't think it's quite the right fit here. I like this one instead. I think if you make change, then lives will be changed. And when those whales come and we see each other and we look into each other's eyes and we have that experience, I am changed. <laughs> Pete Burke, everybody. Amazing. Dean Burke. Where is Logan? Put your hand up, Logan. Are you in here? There's Logan. That's Dean's son. Your dad is a very cool storyteller, man. <clears throat> Amazing. Wow, the power of an experience like that. I love how Dean says, it was just me, the sea, and this mighty whale. I love that line, like out of Moby Dick, isn't it? And an experience that makes you think about so much more than just the meeting of, of two species. One thing I love about being an ecologist is that I always get to learn new things, and I'm annoyingly curious. I never stop asking questions. And uh, nature always has some little surprising fact to share with you. Um, yesterday I was writing uh, an episode that's coming up about the high arctics, Farbard and Spitsbergen in season two. Did I mention we're doing season two? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Svalbard is this amazing place and you go for the bears and you find the walrus and then one of the most amazing discoveries are things like the little things like the arctic terns. These arctic terns have the lar largest migration of any bird species, perhaps of any creature in the world. And I was writing this yesterday and just researching it. I didn't know these things fly 40,000 miles a year from the, from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back again. Amazing. Just these little things. There's something magical about these little discoveries that nature keeps on feeding to us, isn't there? You know, I just absolutely love that. But not all of us come from the same starting point when it comes to experiencing what's beyond our front door, out there in the great outdoors. And sometimes it can be easy to take for granted the, the things that should fill us with wonder, right? We're surrounded by amazing things that happen every moment in nature. For this story, I want you to go back to that sense of wonder, the, the sense of wonder that you had as a child, back when you were still learning what made up the world around you. And there's some of you in this room still, right? Trying to figure out your place and your own identity. Some of us are still trying to do that. Please welcome to the stage, Erica Hilario. Thank you. 
easier this afternoon. <clears throat> My family emigrated from a small group of islands in the South Pacific with tropical, tropical weather all year round. And yet we ended up in the Midwest in one of the coldest cities. <laughs> I grew up on the south side of Chicago, <laughs> poor and immigrant, and with parents that had no idea how to raise a young child in a foreign country, and no less in a foreign city. For example, when I was in the second grade, I had an art assignment to construct a pumpkin. From all the different colors of construction paper, I cut out the orange circle, followed by a green stem, and then finished with black eyes, nose, and alternating teeth. But I didn't have glue. So my mom suggested I smash cooked rice and use that instead. <clears throat> it worked, but when I told some of my classmates, they laughed at me. They thought I was weird for not having glue. And I realized there were certain things I didn't have that made me an outlier. Essentially, I learned early on that some differences separated me from others and made me feel as if I didn't belong. I am a city person through and through. Living and being educated in a city shaped my relationship to nature, my expectations, my prejudices, partly due to my circumstances. Anything outside school and home was a complex maze my parents did not want to enter. It was fitting. Nature wasn't unknown. Half the time, I didn't even know where to find it. Would a train take me there? It was a mystery that only I could resolve. I leaned towards the arts early in life. Science wasn't my best subject, which meant I wasn't very interested, until astronomy was presented. Planets, the stars, the universe. At first, I didn't understand. What stars? White dots in the sky? I only saw one big dot, and it was the moon. When I looked at photos or illustrations of planets, such as Jupiter, Mars, Venus, I didn't see these planets in the sky as books presented them. And so I naturally assumed that went the same for stars and galaxies. Stars and galaxies were far and hidden. Stars somehow just didn't show up in my city sky. One year for 4th of July, being immigrants in the US, celebrating the 4th of July was imperative. My parents allowed me to travel with another family to Wisconsin to watch fireworks. It was a hot Midwest evening with lightning bugs all around and the sound of crickets in the background. I couldn't wait to get out of the steaming car and just run through an endless field of grass, waiting for bright fireworks to appear and maybe have some ice cream. <laughs> as soon as the deep hue of blue began to disappear, the fireworks began. The earth was spinning as I strained my neck upwards to see the sky. My senses were overloaded with bright lights and loud pops. The fireworks kept surrounding me. There was this rapid conversation of lights and loud pops, lights and smokes, and more lights and more smoke until I thought it was over, then would just begin all over again. When it ended, my face still pointed to the sky, 
The smoke disappeared and all was left was this vast darkness with all these tiny speckles. I remember turning to someone and asking, do fireworks leave ash in the sky? <laughs> they chuckled and told me, no, those are all stars. The revelation and the amazement, the discovery of something so simple, so beautiful and transformative has lasted throughout my life. It made such a deep mark and impact on my view of the world. That singular moment reminds me of many emotions. Wonder, excitement, knowledge, happiness, magic, sorrow, minutia, darkness, youth, and belonging, all wrapped in the discovery, into this discovery of what stars really are. After that night, the lyrics in Twinkle Twinkle Little Star finally made sense. <laughs> I returned to city life, and that life became very routine. School, trains, city streets, city noise. I always looked ahead, but I rarely looked up. I was always trying to fit in, not stand out, because I didn't want to be an outlier as I did when I was younger. But whenever I venture out of the city, it's lights, it's streets, it's people, and I enter the vast darkness of fields, mountains, nature, and sky, the first thing I do is look up. And all the experiences of that 4th of July night returns. There's nothing like unraveling in the presence of nature, wondering what it will tell me, what secrets it will share, what possibilities will I learn. And when I feel particularly excluded or lonely, I remember there's one place where I will always feel welcome. Take the bow. Ladies and gentlemen, Erica Hilario. Really nice. Thank you, Erica. Wow, very powerful. I've got a lot of experience with uh, North American wildlife. Uh, my favorite big critters, bears, wolves, and mountain lions. I love these creatures, but there's always been uh, an allure that I've never quite fully satisfied, I have to say, yet. I hope to. But this kind of draw and attraction of Africa. Even the name itself, doesn't it just conjure up all these images? There's this connection that we all share with that continent. It is the birthplace of our species, after all. So sink into this next story. Feel the heat. Hear the sounds as our storyteller takes you there. Please welcome Ilfa Mwindi. <laughs> We woke up late that day in Virunga National Park. I had waited my entire life for this day, sold my Toyota Corolla, most of my belongings to get here, and I slept in. We were supposed to leave at 6 a.m. with the journalists. When my husband and I finally arrived at Ranger headquarters, the Ranger was obviously irritated with us. 
in a blend of rounded French for me and smooth Swahili for my husband, he explained the rules and safety guidelines that we were to follow with the gorillas. Always wear the medical face mask when you're around the gorillas. Always maintain a safe distance of seven meters. Do not eat in front of the gorillas. Do as the ranger tells you. He led us through sourgum fields of deep red against the volcanoes in the distance. It had rained that morning and everything glittered against a brilliant blue sky because we were walking along the edge of the forest, rushing to catch up with a group of journalists. We were out of breath, and then we noticed that the commander walked out of the forest, and we paused. He and our ranger spoke, and I understood that he had seen a different troop in the forest nearby, and the two of them decided that we would leave the journalists and go into the forest there. We walked only a few minutes into the forest when the ranger turned and told us to put on our masks. I thought it had to be too soon, but then the ranger turned to the side and standing in front of us was a silverback gorilla. He was immense and breathtaking. And he stood there and he took measure of us, decided we weren't a threat, and then Knuckle walked past us on the path, gently checking my shoulder as he walked by, sending electricity through my entire body. We walked on. With every step, butterflies would lift up off of the ground, because when you walk through a forest in the Congo, there are butterflies everywhere, and they formed halos around our heads as we walked, probably because of the sweat. And then, a few minutes later, my shoulder was still humming, and the ranger pulled open a curtain of leaves, and lying there in repose was another silverback, cradling his head, in his heavy hands, his legs on a bed of crushed shoots. And while I was trying to take him in, suddenly a little fuzzy face lifted up. Nestled into the armpit of the silverback was a three-year-old female. The silverback had adopted an orphan during the recent war. Her parents and the rest of her troop had been murdered by militia members. Two's assassinating explained the ranger. My French is not very good, and so I wasn't able to ask how she had avoided the illegal wildlife trade, how he had kept her safe, how he had found her, if he was related. What I do know is that he did find her, and that he had kept her safe and healthy for over a year, and in that year he had avoided poachers' snares, armed militias, and a volcanic eruption which spewed a river of lava through their territory. And here they were, sleeping in a nest. We walked on. I don't know how long we walked for because it felt more like flying than walking. And then we heard the clatter of a gorilla pounding its chest. And suddenly the branches were waving and they were cracking open. And then a feisty six-year-old came out. And she obviously recognized the ranger because she tackled him from behind. No touching indeed. <laughs> he laughed. She laughed. And then... A smaller, quieter juvenile climbed down from the branches above. The two of them started to eat bamboo, the feisty one crushing into bamboo that was definitely too big for her. She was showing off. And then they looked past us, and I turned, and I found myself staring into the eyes of a baby. He was eight months old, and he was still learning how to walk. His little face 
was the definition of joyful curiosity, and he was drawn to the three humans. Every time he would wander too close, his mom would reach out an arm and pull him back, and he would wander too close, she would pull him back, wander and pull back, and then finally she threw him onto her shoulder and went to go sit with the black back who was sitting nearby. A black back is a juvenile male gorilla on the edge of adulthood. This individual was 17, and he was every bit as immense as his father, who we had met on the trail, but he was softer. The rangers think that this particular male will stay with his family because he seems really happy with his place in the troop. And then the baby set his eyes on the blackback. He started climbing up the furry belly, fists over tiny, tiny little fists. And then he reached the brother's chest and then he grabbed fistfuls of hair and he shook and he screamed until the brother plucked him off and set him down. <laughs> and then he climbed back up screamed, got plucked off, sat down, and it was scream and pluck and scream and pluck for several minutes. And the blackback was always gentle, and he was always watching. We often tell such simple, flat stories about animals, stories which match the data, which educate others about animals in clean, precise ways. Gorillas live in troops with a dominant male called the silverback. They are highly intelligent. They are vegetarians. They share 98% of our DNA. In the moment, I was struck by how dynamic these gorillas were. They were adapting to changes in their home, and they clearly had not settled on a single story of what a gorilla is or is not. And to meet a gorilla is to look face to face with someone who interprets the world very much as you do, for our senses are nearly identical in every way. It was clear that they were observing me and measuring me, and I could not help but wonder at what they were thinking. I know that they will remember this day too, but how? Will they ever think of me, of my crying eyes as I sat there in the bamboo? While I have language to share my stories and a microphone to amplify my voice and record my thoughts from that day, the thoughts of those gorillas are lost to us. The actions of the gorillas, the old male who had adopted the infant, was this a way of resisting having your thoughts die with you? What all do we lose when we lose gorillas? Before we left the forest, I held the hand of the ranger and I thanked him for everything that he has done. He had deep creases around his eyes. His voice was soft from so many years of speaking in the forest and his shoulder was bent under the rifle that he carried. He was a biologist with paramilitary training who had seen so many changes in his home. He, too, clearly felt very deeply moved by the experience of sitting with the gorillas, though neither of us shared our thoughts. We just looked at each other. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing, huh? You guys enjoying this? Are you 
feeling the relaxation. Yeah, are you in Africa right now? I love it. God, I was. I'm, uh, oh, I almost didn't come out here. I was in the middle of nowhere. The gorillas, but not just the gorillas, hey, the people that protect them often with their lives right on the front line. Incredibly profound. Our relatives in the jungles. Most days I don't think that humans are the more evolved species, but hoping we still have time to learn. <laughs> I love that description of the, of the mama pulling her eight-month-old back, right? Constantly. We can all relate to that. We humans do like to think that we're in control, don't we? You know, that we've successfully settled everything that was once wild. And in some ways, that could be partly true. But I've also seen enough to know that nature's pretty resilient and has a way of bouncing back, has a way of responding to our human footprint. Thank goodness. Give nature half a chance and she'll do the rest, right? Our next storyteller is fascinated by the human impact on wilderness. And he's here to tell us about a lesson he learned one day in North Central Washington. Please welcome to the stage, Garth Donald. Tucked away deep in the Sawtooth Wilderness, there is a ridge that separates the ancient Medhow Valley and Lake Chelan. It is rocky and lifeless that high up in the wilderness, but the chance to see both of these massive valleys falling away at the same time is a pretty good reason for a simple overnight hike. I had found an old topographical map in our local library. It showed a rough trail up through the Sawtooths. The trail would take about eight hours in, and there was supposedly a little cabin up there that you could crash in overnight. At least someone had drawn a picture of a cabin on the map <laughs> in pencil. <laughs> but I live in the area, so I figure, hey, let's go check this out before the winter blocks the roads. Should be a good way to send off the autumn season. The hike itself wasn't too bad at the start. Gorgeous views, trees, rocks, little chipmunks running around looking at me. I'd packed light because I knew there was a cozy cabin up there. I just had my bivy sack and the essentials. I was making good time, but as often happens in the wilderness, the trail I was on slowly petered out. See, most people will hike in for an hour or two and turn around and head back. They don't have my map with my secret little cabin drawn on it. A thin trail I was prepared for. What I didn't think about, though, was snow. You sometimes forget that mountains do mountainy things, and an early season snow is a very mountainy thing. <laughs> See, I've got a personal rule about the backcountry. I'll only hike as far as I can crawl back from. I can make it a day, maybe two on a trail, but snow. Snow is a different beast. You have to stay on your feet in snow. You certainly can't sleep in snow unless you've got the right gear. The sun was setting soon. The trail was gone, and my little cabin was up ahead somewhere. I had to make a choice. As usual, my ego got the best of me, so I kept on trucking. I had to guess the direction. The snow gave no clues, just sort of forwardish, upward. The further I got, the stupider I felt. I was stupid, 
My little map was clearly stupid. Those tree stumps are stupid. This trail is stupid. My wet boots are stupid. The Tree stumps aren't stupid. Tree stumps mean people. And the only reason you'd be cutting down trees this high up in the mountains is because right there, the cabin. I would have bumped right into it. It was right where I was uh, hoping it would be, right in front of me. Now, cabin is a uh, forgiving term for this structure. <laughs> there were raw timbers for the walls. The roof was made of earth covered in moss and saplings growing out of the top. Caved in a bit on the sides. The doorway was about three feet tall. It was either designed by gnomes or it had sunk into the earth in the past century. It smelled musty, damp, and it had a bare dirt floor. But hey, it's snowy out, so I got my home and I decided to settle down for the night. It was pretty dang dark when I unrolled my bivy sack and crawled inside. I turned down my little camp light and finally, the peace of the hills. Wait. What's that noise? <laughs> little footsteps. Mountain creatures just outside my cabin. I popped open my camp light, saw a pair of eyes at the window. Oh, eyes. I don't know what lives up here. Wolves, bears, wolf bears. <laughs> I pulled my bag tight against my chin. I heard a bark outside. A little muzzle poked through the doorway. No, this is my cabin. I almost convinced myself. <laughs> this is bad. It's cold out. These guys are hungry, and here I am wrapped up like a little human burrito. <laughs> there wasn't much I could do but just stay awake and watch out for these guys. I can't sleep. You know how boring it gets when you have to stay up all night in the cold? That's a lot of time that you're stuck with your thoughts, and unfortunately, I don't have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> but I had to keep myself occupied, so... I would sing to myself. The only thing that came to mind was the Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon. Now, I have a liberal arts degree, so I know the album note for note. <laughs> there's the bells, there's the solo, and I'll see you on the Dark Side of the Moon. That's 48 minutes down, and I only have to do that 10 more times. <laughs> of course, I didn't make it through another 10 times. I dozed off eventually, lightly. At one point, I noticed the sky looked a bit gray. Some blue streaks of pink, and before I knew it, a glowing orb peeked over the horizon. There she was, the sun. I had survived the night. I stood up on sore and wobbly legs. I began to gather my bedding. The bare dirt floor was easier to see now, and it wasn't as flat as I had assumed. There were marks that weren't mine, little footprints in the dirt about the size of a fist, even little round bedding spots, tufts of fur, bits of food in the corners. And then it all came together. The little dudes from last night, the ones who were bugging me the whole evening, 
This is what it was all about. This cabin, this home. Oh, they didn't want to eat me. Okay, maybe they wanted to eat me, but what they really wanted was to go back to their little home. And there I was taking up space like a goober, humming to myself all night. (laughs) After a hurried breakfast, I lifted my pack onto my shoulders. I scanned the trees looking around from the little creatures of the evening. I didn't know what to say. I wanted to apologize for my bad behavior. I had planned to survive the night in a cabin that had been forgotten about long ago, but this wasn't a forgotten cabin by any means. I never figured out which animal had been bothering me. If it was a dangerous type, I suppose I wouldn't be here telling this story today. I'm happy to tell folks that this cabin exists, but I'll never tell anyone how to find this cabin because it's not really ours anymore. All right, Garth, I love it. Wow, so glad you didn't get eaten, mate. But you totally left us hanging there. Mountain creatures, I'm using that phrase in the next episode. But we'll never know just what they were. Wolf bears. Wow, that'd be the most awesome animal on the planet. Wolf and a bear together. All right, now... These guys make me nervous because they're so good. It's my turn to share a story with you now. And and, uh, this was fun writing it. It took me back in time. I had to dig deep for this memory. I hope you enjoy it. Squatting. I was never very good at it. I think I'm too tall or something. But this morning I had no choice. I had to master it because this morning I have Jardia and I'm a long way from the nearest toilet. And just four little sticks straddle the opening of a pit latrine underneath me. Sticks for me to place my giant feet on and hope to God that they hold my 230 pound weight. (laughs) What's running through my head, my concern, is that no one at camp is this heavy including the fellas who dug this, this, this latrine. These sticks have never had to hold someone my weight. Three things made it worse. First, I'm wearing thick blue plastic flip-flops, you know, the kind that get really rigid when it's cold, you know. Second, the sticks are covered in ice (laughs) because I'm at 16,000 feet above sea level and it's been a very cold night. Third, I also have altitude sickness, so it feels a bit like my brain is trying to bleed out of my ears. One slip and it's all over. I am not a happy camper. Which is ironic because in 1993, one year earlier, all I could do was dream about being here, the Himalayas. Just 12 months ago, I'm at this major bear research conference in Alaska, surrounded by PhDs. The place is full of brainiacs. And I'm just a 24-year-old bear biologist wannabe, trying to follow my dream of becoming a fully-fledged bear guy. I'd done a little bit of work in New Hampshire and a couple of other places briefly, but I was at the conference to dream about what could be next. 
On the conference stage is this Pakistani bear researcher, Dr. Anis Rahman. And the room is hushed. Everybody wants to hear what he has to say. And he describes this beautiful mountain plateau. On his map, it looks like a, a freckle in a sea of white mountains. The giant peaks of the Karakoram Range. And he talks about what he thinks lives there, a handful of some of the rarest bears in the world. Himalayan brown bears, like our grizzlies, but even tougher. Dr. Anise is cool and calm, and he's totally legit. He's, he's tall with a big mustache and an air of confidence. He and his colleague, Vakaza Karaya, are trying to prove that there are still bears on this plateau, something almost impossible in a place that's this wild and this inaccessible. I remember my mind reeling as he spoke. I tried to picture being there. I don't know how, but I knew I had to get there. What a place, and what a place to learn about bears. As soon as Dr. Anise finished speaking, I grabbed my bag and I shot down the stage to introduce myself. But throngs of people swarmed him. It was like we were at some kind of rock concert. So I never got to meet him. I got home to England and I couldn't get the Himalayas those bears, Dr. Anise, couldn't get them out of my head. Maybe I should write a letter, a phone call, too expensive. Right, I'm going to fax him. Remember those? <laughs> Dear Dr. Anise, we met in Alaska at the bear conference. Not really. I would love to come and learn from you and your team about the bears of the Himalayas. And guess what? He wrote back. Same day, I think. The fax was painfully slow. <laughs> Might as well have been in Morse code, you know. I remember you well, Mr. Chris. <laughs> what? Never mind, doesn't matter. I'm in. My ticket to becoming a bear biologist. A chance to learn from Pakistan's very own leading bear expert. Just became very real. I worked extra hours at the pub. I even learned how to apply for a grant, got one, that was the flight paid for. I hoped the rest would just somehow fall into place. It did. So here I am, squatting <laughs> in the Himalayas. <laughs> in Urdu, the Pakistani people call this place Land of the Giants. In front of me stretches the DSI Plateau. From the latrine, I can almost see K2, the second highest mountain in the world. Over there is the border of Kashmir. And somewhere, maybe somewhere, some Himalayan bears. I made it, my dream gig. Although it's not the start I'd pictured, you know, diarrhea and bleeding ears and all of those things, I was still beyond excited. And it's a big day. The bosses, Dr. Anis and Vakar, are gathering the small Pakistani team here at base camp. It's like the formal start to our research season. And I'm a little bit intimidated. I can see them starting to gather in the mess tent. So I summon my courage, carefully step off my sticks, <laughs> and head into the tent and sit down on the floor with the guys. And we're all cross-legged in a circle. It's all quite ceremonious. And I remember the smell inside the tent. It was intoxicating. Curried beans and warm roti, the local bread. Everyone was looking at me. Dr. Anise was first to speak, the bear biologist I'd met in Alaska. <laughs> so, Chris, tell us all about bears, he says. Weird, I thought. 
must be a test to figure out what I know. So maybe I'll start at the beginning. Well, uh, bears as carnivores... Wait a minute! Bears are carnivores? Says Anise. Yes, bears are carnivores. You know that. You're a bear biologist, I said. And he smiles and he goes, Oh, no, 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 no. I'm a dentist. <laughs> a dentist? I said. Yes, I'm a dentist. A dentist? I said, again, what? I felt my jaw drop, you know, when they literally drop. And I looked over to the other boss, Vakar, hoping, just hoping he was the bear biologist here. And Vakar here is a chemical engineer. <laughs> a chemical engineer? I said. I don't know what to say. I almost began to cry. I, 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 honestly, I think it came out as kind of a nervous, ah, nervous laughter, you know. <laughs> what have I done? You know, I've spent every penny. I've traveled halfway around the world to learn about Himalayan brown bears from a dentist and a chemical engineer. <laughs> Dr. Anise wasn't a doctor of bears. He was a doctor of teeth. Then Anise said, we are here to save these bears. It was that that landed him on the stage at the bear conference a year earlier. He was one of the very few people who knew anything about these mysterious bears. I was in shock, but also in awe. And then I was in shock again. <laughs> How was I going to get the training that I'd come for? I, I didn't sleep much that night. Early the next morning, I woke up to the sound of one of the team members, Rashid, singing the Islamic call to prayer just a few feet away. Oh, it was beautiful. I poked my head out of the tent to watch, and I'd never seen this before, and it, it moved me so much. I remember lying there, feeling quite overwhelmed, and at 25 years old, not sure what I'd got myself into. But as the days unfolded, I discovered I discovered I was with a team of very special people, and I got to know them really well. Hiked mile after mile on the search for bears. They were totally driven, but they were so fun-loving and warm. Rashid, tiny man, biggest beard you've ever seen in your life, mischievous and always laughing. Halim, who was like this larger-than-life Pakistani cowboy, always rallying us with his enthusiasm. Come on, Chris! And Dr. Anis and Vakar at the helm. They'd brought this motley crew together on a mission for these bears in the middle of nowhere. And it turns out bears were quite new to all of them. And the limited bear research experience I'd had became more useful than I ever imagined here. And we began to learn together. I remember finding our first fresh bear tracks in the mud, but no bears, until one day. We walked to the top of a hill next to camp to take a look down the valley before turning in for the night and we scanned the distance with our binoculars, not expecting to see a thing. And then, a bear, a bear, right there on the slope below us. I remember the first <gasps> gasp from one of the guys and then another bear. It was a female and a cub. 
and he's grabbed my shoulders tight and just hugs me. He's laughing, hugging me hard. We all hugged. I've never done a silent Irish jig, but that's exactly what we all did. <laughs> just, we didn't want to disturb the bears. Jig quietly. And it was a huge turning point. After that, we saw bears almost every week and we honed our skills together, racing to understand them. We'd hike for miles, crossing rivers, mountain passes, getting lost in the fog one time, and even chased down by nomadic herdsmen one day. But it didn't matter because we were starting to see bears and dream of protecting them like Anis and Vakar. And it worked. A year later, Anis and Vakar made sure of it. This land of the giants became a protected place for bears forever. It was designated DSI National Park. And the bear numbers? They're now growing slowly. For me, it's a place where my young mind learned things that I still carry with me today, but not about bears, about people and the human spirit. That summer of 94, I learned more than I ever saw coming from my new friends in Pakistan. I learned that it's not always about PhDs and protocol, but passion and being bold enough to do brave things. I also learned that anything is possible from a dentist and a chemical engineer who love bears. <laughs> Thank you guys. Fun going down memory lane with you there. It's now my pleasure to introduce our next storyteller. Technology has changed a lot since I got into, into conservation. We only used to be able to track animals with VHF radio collars, you know, when you actually had to go out and into the field. But now biologists don't even have to leave their desks to do it. <laughs> you can use satellite GPS. But there's nothing that can replace this sense of curiosity. I really believe that curiosity and being a curious person is really fundamental, this characteristic to studying nature for anyone who wants to study wildlife and nature. Our next storyteller told me that she grew up in a very science-focused household. And when she's out in nature, it can be tricky for her to find a balance between being precise and analytical versus just being. Please welcome Keturah Reynolds to the stage. The year was 1997. It was Bill Clinton's second term in office. Princess Diana's days were numbered, and Mother Teresa would pass away soon after. The first Toyota Prius was about to hit the streets, and Comet Hale-Bopp was blazing its way across the night sky. The Titanic movie was pretty big. <laughs> and some of you, yes, 
some of you were not even born yet. <laughs> but me, I had just completed my bachelor's degree in fine art at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And wildlife was actually a big part of why I chose that school. Four years earlier, on my informal evening tour of the campus, I couldn't even see most of the university's buildings because the redwood trees were so thick. But I did see more than a dozen deer wandering the campus that night. And I also spotted the very first wild bobcat that I had ever seen in my life. There were mountain lion warnings posted prominently in all of the school's restrooms. And our school mascot was a bright yellow banana slug, thank you very much. <laughs> Forget you, UC Berkeley. All I saw on your campus was a squirrel jumping in and out of a garbage can. <laughs> now, I majored in art because UC Santa Cruz had an amazing program in science illustration at the time. And it's at this point that everyone asks, what is science illustration? Don't worry, I got you on that. Think of the drawings that you see in textbooks, or in newspapers, or in the doctor's office. Diagrams of how eyeballs work, animation showing the movement of fault lines during an earthquake, or extinct dinosaurs reconstructed from their bones. It's the artwork that explains how the natural world around us works. And this was a perfect fit for me. I was passionate about science and nature, and I was not excited about taking math or statistics. <laughs> Another perk for me is that at the time, even though computers were on the scene, illustration work was still grounded in very classic techniques. I was sharpening graphite pencils until they were as precise as tiny chisels. I was holding my breath through precise watercolor strokes on very smooth paper. I was ritualistically cleaning off the point of my steel-nibbed pens with rubbing alcohol before I dipped them back in the tiny glass bottle of ink to make more lines on the page. It was old school with a capital old. <laughs> now, my parents had been working in museums for decades. And in fact, when they needed a babysitter when I was a kid, they just kind of dropped me off on the bottom level of the museum with all the taxidermy polar bears. But that's a different story. <laughs> Mom and Dad were pretty darn proud of me, despite the fact that I hadn't followed a traditional hard science approach. My dad had actually started farming out my science illustration services to his colleagues for all of their scientific papers. I was getting so good at sitting for hours and hours at a microscope, looking at the tiny details of rodent teeth. <laughs> I could draw the most itty-bitty nuances of enamel and dentine patterns with those tiny little metal pens and the little jar of ink. To celebrate my graduation, my parents rented a little cabin in the town of Felton, which is in the woods just north of Santa Cruz. And it was there that they gave me my very, special, my very special graduation treat. It was my very own night vision camera. What? 
the thing was about the size of a, of a camcorder, if anyone remembers what camcorder is. <laughs> you can imagine it being about the size of a loaf of bread or so. And it had a strap on the right side where you could put your hand and then hold it up to your eye and then move it left to right. And now I'm guessing this night vision camera was originally designed as a tool for deer hunters, maybe. My parents were so sure that I was going to find it so useful for drawing pictures of wildlife in the dark. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that works. Anybody. But a new toy is a new toy. And I was pumped. I was really excited. And our little cabin in the woods was right along a creek. So I was guessing we were going to see all sorts of critters at night, right? So as soon as the sun went down, I stepped out into the warm summer night, and I turned on my night vision camera. There I was, khaki shorts, plaid flannel shirt, because this was the 90s after all. And I had so much confidence and curiosity the way that only a 20-something kid just out of college can really have, right? So I started methodically scanning the landscape through this gadget. I swept the camera slowly across the dense forest understory from left to right. I checked the base of every shrub, and I ran it up and down every tree trunk. I was poised to revel in nature's secrets as they unveiled themselves through the power of technology. Technology, technology. <laughs> okay, that's a tree. That's a bush. And there's a shrub. And there's a tree. And that's a shrub. And that's a shrub. For like 20 minutes, I saw nothing, you guys. Nothing. But that's fine, because you can't sit at a microscope and stare at rodent teeth for a whole semester without having a lot of patience. <laughs> but then I felt something. It was soft. It was brushing against the back of my leg. It almost felt like a long-haired cat. Are there cats in this neighborhood? Puzzled, I lowered my night vision camera and I looked down at the ground. Oh my god! Immediately behind me was a skunk. <laughs> it was a striped skunk. Scientific name, Mephitis Mephitis which is not a rodent, those are mustelids. They have totally different dental patterns. <laughs> Evidently, I was standing right on the same path that the skunk used to do his nightly rounds through the neighborhood. And he had just given me a saucy swat with his floofy black and white tail as he walked by. My big boots were just obstructing his path, and he was just trying to scoot by. Thanks, you know, pardon me, just scooting by. I was kind of freaked out. <laughs> I held very, very still. And thank goodness, that skunk stayed perfectly calm and relaxed. He was actually waddling along with just a lot of confidence and daring do, if I may say so myself. And 
He did not blast me with any of his super stinky self-defense spray. (sighs) Now, 22 years ago, we were not all glued to smartphones day and night. We weren't obsessively thinking about social media posts and selfie potential. It was really kind of unusual at the time for me to be trying to experience wildlife through an electronic gadget. And this skunk, I honestly think he was making fun of me. (laughs) I could practically see the cartoon thought bubble above his fuzzy little head, right? And he was delivering this message with utmost skunky irony. Oh, nice wildlife camera you've got up there. So you're looking for wildlife, are you? Swat. I've got your wildlife right here. I love it. Thank you so much, Keturah. I tell you, I'd rather have a close-up encounter with a grizzly bear than a skunk, that's for sure. Very brave. I enjoyed the trip down memory lane as well in this story, you know. The days before cell phones and selfies, remember that? Wasn't it lovely? Back to basics, like how to keep a skunk off your leg, yeah. Um, All right, we have just two stories left, so enjoy them. We're all going to have some really good, vivid dreams tonight, aren't we? Do you feel it coming? There's a lot going on, isn't there? Now, I I really believe that nature connects us all, you know, whether you're a hundred-foot-long blue whale or a tiny, single-celled organism. There's a pulse and a rhythm that echoes through it all, an energy, like the energy in this room. What happens when we look deeply into the intimate connection between ourselves and the non-human world? Our next storyteller is a poet. And she wanted to to let you know, she wanted you to know that her story is an act of commemoration, an enactment of remembrance, and the connection between all sentient beings. So what do we learn about ourselves when we consider that all beings are our relations? Please welcome to the stage, Xin Yi Pai. Passengers aboard our Puget Sound-bound vessel included a bespoke shoemaker, a floral designer, and two lawyers. A group of strangers had assembled together on a rainy winter night to experience squid jigging. I was standing beside Evan, a retired smoke jumper, when he pulled the juvenile squid out of the Salish Sea. A marine biologist in residence for the night came over to examine the freshly caught specimen. I felt a terrible sense of responsibility for this animal's life. It had been preparing to spawn when the lighted lures hanging off of our barge attracted him to swim towards our vessel. The opalescent animal met my gaze with an unblinking and silent stare. 
As the scientist prodded the miniature squid, he released a spurt of black ink that stained the creases of Evan's weathered palm. My professional work puts me in a position to design and produce uncommon experiences for people. My friend David had come to me with the idea of organizing a squid fishing expedition that could celebrate a unique Pacific Northwest tradition, a migration that can be seen late at night along the piers of Elliott Bay and West Seattle throughout late fall and early winter. The eerie beauty of the luminescent lures and fishing lines of squid jiggers rivals only the magic of walking into low tide at midnight to encounter hundreds of razor clam diggers outfitted in headlamps as they overturn sand along the shoreline. These romantic images filled my imagination when I agreed to produce the event and chartered a private boat. But I came too late to realizing the horror of what we were actually planning a hunting expedition where kinship with nature would mean taking a life. I am a Buddhist. I'd taken vows to do no harm, to respect all life and to honor all sentient beings. David pulled out a sheet of fine art Strathmore and spread the squid's figure over the textured white paper so that the guests on the boat could examine it more closely beneath the bright light. As a group gathered around the limp squid, the marine biologist scraped a plastic fork across its body to activate a rainbow of chromatophores. I felt myself in the active act of breaking a vow. I had violated a commitment, and not only did I feel a profound disconnection to nature, I felt aware of being cut off from my own humanity. Does it feel pain, someone asked. Does it understand what's happening to it? The scientist was diplomatic when he declared, they have very highly developed sensory systems. I was blinded by the tears filling my eyes and walked towards the back of the boat where I could quietly weep unnoticed as the biologist continued lecturing on cephalopod biology. I dreaded this moment the entire night and quietly prayed that we'd fail at our expedition. That moment of gazing into the eyes of a dying squid was my personal turning of the wheel. Prince Siddhartha touched it when he walked out beyond the palace walls to see a freshly plowed field that exposed the earthworms who made their homes there. The worms wriggled in distress, trying desperately to find cover while others writhed in pain, having just been cleaved in two. All beings suffer, but in this case, I contributed to creating suffering for another soul. These events weigh upon me still. So often, communion with nature involves the sublime, some experience of obliteration. In my ill-fated fishing expedition, it included an enactment of power upon a being whose life was perceived as lesser. We were wrong. I was wrong. No life has more value than another. As the squid expired, someone bagged it and threw it into a plastic cooler. What remained was a natural imprint of the animal's body left behind on paper in the tradition of a Japanese gyotaku, or fish print, a record of a night's catch. In another print, 
Drips of opalescent squid ink shimmer with gold. When I look at this image, I think of kintsugi, shattered ceramics that are carefully mended with a lacquer resin mixed with powdered gold. Ruptures and mending are part of the history. The damage is visible and still somehow unspeakable in its beauty. I hope you all loved those stories as much as I did. We also took a video of each storyteller, and if you'd like to see them, check us out online at kurw.org slash thewild, or on Instagram at thewildpod. And again, we're planning another evening of storytelling from the wild, so if these stories have inspired you, seriously think about submitting your own experience on our website, or you can email us at thewild at kurw.org. This episode was produced by Matt Martin and edited by Jim Gates. The storytelling event was produced by Charlotte Duran and Bridget Anderson. We had additional help from Michaela Giannotti and Tio Popescu. Rob Jacob Springer was our audio engineer, and our videographer was Marcy Stone Francois. Michael Parker composed our theme music. And I'm Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.